Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. Okay, this is my third effort at recording this intro. If it doesn't work this time, I'm going to go make some coffee. It's taken a while longer for me to get this episode out to y'all. But um, I've been very busy, not only with normal life, but with my information ventures. So some of you will have noticed that I keep talking about this trigram stuff, and I know that I've linked to one of the videos that I made about the trigrams, kind of an introduction to the theory on the subject. I've made a bunch of other videos recently discussing some of the, some of the ins and outs. So there's gonna be a link with that YouTube channel and I've launched two other surf services in the information zone on the Patreon account. One of them is a songwriting service. I used to be a, uh, an aspiring professional musician, spent a, a great deal of time pursuing that dream and developed a certain degree of skill at it. I think I'm a pretty decent songwriter and maybe not a great musician, but I think the stuff is pretty interesting. You know, comparatively speaking and within whatever genre it is. You drive me crazy With everything you say So, Patreon now has a, uh, a couple of songs up there, one for subscribers only, and the other one is associated with this songwriting venture that I will link in the, in the uh, episode description. The basic idea is, for a flat fee, I'll write a song on any subject and give you a complete recording. So I think what I might do is uh, I'll put one of those songs in the background while I'm doing the rest of this uh, intro. Wouldn't that make sense? So um, so yeah, that stuff that you're hearing right now in the background, that's kind of the kind of thing that I do. So maybe I'll do two of them. So I'll switch to the other one now. You can hear what that one's like. So um, I'm also... Coming out of the closet, I've been thinking about a variety of different subjects for a long time now, and for about 20 years I've been working on this, I'm going to use the air quotes, astrology system. It's not astrology. Astrology is the wrong word. But that's the word everyone uses. It's a natal chart reading. So that's another service that I'm now offering. The link is in the description below, so patreon.com slash Taiji Reality, T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y. You want to check out some of these new offerings or support the Assembly of Silence. And so now for this episode, uh, I'm really pleased to have Colin back. He actually reached out to me. He wanted to discuss a particular topic. 
And Callan makes his own video series on YouTube. And uh, he actually makes a number of video series. And he has this wonderful disclaimer at the beginning that I really should integrate into every single episode that I do here. And what it basically says is, I probably got something wrong at some point or another in this episode. So just keep that in mind. And having edited this episode, I'm sure that I got something wrong in it. There were a number of times where I really didn't express myself as well as I could, and that's actually, I think, pretty normal. I'm not the best at saying things in the best way possible. I feel like I have some relatively worthwhile things to say, but I'm not that great at saying them in a way that's going to be easy to understand or consistent. But in this case, I actually blew it a few times. I think. Colin put together a, uh, a playlist of videos of people talking about this subject, the subject of free will is what we're going to be discussing. And I think, quite frankly, many of these well-known persons also really blow it when it comes to this subject. So I don't feel so alone. Um, it's also worth mentioning that just during the time that we were discussing this and collecting material and recording, and in the space between the two episodes that we recorded, some news items came out about how some of the experiments that were used as the basis for instance Sam Harris's perspective have been shown to be incorrect. So I think that's really fascinating. Something's going on right now in terms of a, a shift of perspective here. So when you're in the middle of a shift of perspective it's difficult to really drill down on exactly what's going on yet. So we're we're trying to get our uh, our mind around this complex, interesting, and problematic topic. So it's a long episode, and there's gonna be a one after this that we've already recorded, which is also long, and I think I'm gonna take a little section of particularly juicy stuff and just put it in there for you subscribers to Patreon. And I think what I'm gonna end up doing is creating a third episode on the subject where I kind of collect my thoughts and try to integrate it into some of the things that I, some of the other things that are being discussed regularly. So without wasting your time, one more moment. Here it is, the latest conversation with Colin on free will. Enjoy. This is going to be an interesting challenge. <laughs> Do you mean the conversation topic or something else? Well, I mean, the topic itself is, uh, you know, something that is part of the general wheelhouse that I'm interested in. But to reference the material that you sent and that's part of that playlist and, and to kind of integrate um, the various ideas out there into a conversation, that will be challenging and interesting. I've taken a lot of notes and I'm not exactly sure how useful they're going to be, but... Um, but it really is an interesting set of issues, and there's a lot of drama, I think, in some respects about about the essence of the question. You know, it, it, it's something that yeah. that seems to strike at the heart of what it means to be a human being, uh, or maybe even more generally, what life is all about. So, mm -hmm. 
the way that we dis- <laughs> however we decide to view it, it seems to have a huge impact on on uh, on our sense of what it is that we're about and and what the world consists of. Well, I think you just gave a pretty good intro, so I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend that we have that be the beginning when you just got back with your notes. And, okay, great. Um, I kind of want to I want to kind of give kind of introduction to people listening, like what what started this conversation. So I have a I don't know it's kind of a podcast, but you know, ask Callan. I let people ask me anything they want, and then I make a video answering it. Mm-hmm. And normally it's pretty easy. But I got into this. I had a video just recently called "What Is Free Will?" No, not "What Is Free Will." What is natural law? Mm. And you know, I posted that, and I got into a conversation in the comment section with someone. And this was a very, very logical person, you know, who's throwing out logical rules and, and fallacies and calling me on all that type of stuff, which I think is a good thing. And basically, I'm like, he's like, "Well, what is?" I told him that I used to be basically Sam Harris. Sam Harris is someone who does not believe the free will. He basically thinks it's an idea that doesn't mean anything at all, essentially. Right. And that he believes that the world is completely deter- deterministic. And I used to think exactly like that. And I still f- listen to him and I still find him totally convincing, but I just feel like there's something missing. And so this guy on the forum was like, well, it sounds like you're a convert, you know, putting in kind of religion, uh, religious terms, which I was a little annoyed at, but I said, well, I'll make, he said, what's the argument that convinced you? And I said, I'll just make a video about it. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I want to do a good job with the video and I want to answer like, not, I mean, I would like to be right about whatever I'm saying, but really what's more important to me is that I'm representing what I actually believe at this moment. And yet I'm not totally even clear on what I believe. I mean, uh-huh. my, Belief in free will, I think, is largely based on the fact that there's a lot of people who talk about other things and their perspectives on those things I agree with. And they also all those people tend to believe in free will. And so that's not really a very good reason to believe in free will, Um, though. I think that is how we make a lot of our decisions or beliefs, just basically on who do we trust and what do they believe? Well, I think it's really important. So I went into this. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead and finish. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so basically I made the, I started watching videos on YouTube. I made that playlist I sent to you, which is just a bunch of videos on different perspectives of what free will is both, you know, the hard determinism, the, you know, compatibilism, which thinks that they're both, they can both work. And then there's the libertarian view, which is, yeah, we're totally free to do whatever we want. And, um, I just thought it would be better, you know, for me to kind of, put that all together in a conversation and uh you i really couldn't think of anyone better to do that with than you so that's essentially what i see this conversation as well thank you that's uh that's high praise and i'll do my best to uh give you whatever it is that i have to offer um i think that it's really important to really drill down on what it is that we mean by free will because from my point of view a lot of the the people who are talking about free will are not really talking about free will. And I would include Sam Harris in that category. So Mm -hmm. what do you think, I mean, how are we going to define free will for the purposes of this conversation? Yeah, see, that's a hard thing because when people talk about free will, it seems like it's largely a semantic problem. And 
people mean different things. And I would say yes or no, depending on which thing we're talking about, I suppose. So, I mean, I feel like that's kind of my goal here is to figure out what I mean by free will. And so I don't feel like I'm quite ready to answer that question right at the beginning of this conversation. I mean, I could, I could list out the different types of free will that people seem to refer to. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it might be interesting to try to do a quick survey of the various points of view that are expressed in that playlist that you sent out, Uh, Mm -hmm. although that could get us into the weeds pretty quickly. So in some respects, it might also be better to just jump to the chase and have our conversation, never mind what everyone else says. You convinced me that it may be best to just start with what each of us thinks it is and then go from there. Great. Yeah, so let's uh, uh, continue along those lines and see if we can drill down into the terms because fundamentally you can't have a conversation that's meaningful until the terms are agreed upon. So until we have Mm -hmm. a sense of what's meant by free will, whatever it is that we say about it is going to be ridiculous. And that's what I hear Mm -hmm. happening a lot in these conversations is that people will throw things in that aren't necessarily part of what's really covered by the term, at least the way I see it. So I'll say, from my point of view, what we're talking about with free will is that there is an agent that's capable of making a choice. And I don't think there's really anything more or less about it. It has to do with freedom to what, will? Well, will has to do with wishing. It has to do with some kind of Um, future potential, it has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not that potential is realized in the way that one conceived of it. It's just simply the ability to make a choice of whatever appears to be the various options uh, available to one. And so the, the opposite of that would be the automaton that has no choice in the matter. Like, irrespective of its understanding of things, it's not going to have an ability to choose. It has to go with one way or another, assuming that an automaton could have some kind of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. So there is this strange discomfort between the idea of the universe is consisting of fundamentally uh, automatic deterministic processes and that everything is in some way or another essentially a machine, somewhat along the lines of what's covered in the third section of um, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, the documentary by Adam Curtis that talks about basically kind of the selfish gene theory and how it was used Mm -hmm. as a way of explaining human behavior in a very deterministic fashion. So there's the discomfort of that thing coming up against a more perhaps humanistic, traditional concept that uh, we are conscious beings who have the ability to make choices and to some extent steer our destinies because of that. So that's really, I think, the fundamental question is whether or not we're able to make a choice. You know, and, and so what, what do you think about that as, as a basis for the conversation? Well, I think that's a good place to start. I think I agree with you. I mean, basically, it's just saying that people, I would I would call it people, are fundamental to the universe, and fundamental to people is the ability to make a choice about something. Does that sound like basically what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
the extent to which, you know, what's meant by people and whether or not it's, I mean, obviously we are an attribute of the universe, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So yeah, I basically agree with that. It might be worth pointing out just briefly some of the things that seem to get folded into the concept of free will that maybe don't belong there. Like one of the things that Sam Harris seems to have a problem with is this question of the various things that occur to him. So the sort of limitations on what it is that we can conceive of as possibilities. Mm -hmm. And then he also seems to have a problem with the uh, difficulty in implementing whatever it is that we decide to do. In other words, the outcomes aren't always in line with what the will is going after. And he sees that as being some, for some reason or another, a problem when it comes to free will. But it's sort of like any other thing where there's some sense of free agency. There's nothing that says anything whatsoever about it actually leading to the desired outcome. You know, it's just a question of whether or not one can act freely. And then when it comes to the, the, the source of the various options that one's able to conceive of, I think that Harris makes some interesting points about that, that fundamentally there is a, a kind of a, 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 before we're able to notice it, the phenomena within consciousness has already occurred. And there's a number of different people who have pointed this out, that basically a thought happens to you, you don't manufacture it yourself. And right, we can predict what someone's going to think or what they're going to do or decide, you know, up to depending on the experiment, up to seven seconds before the person is even aware of having made a choice. Although it has to be noted that in those experiments, what we're talking about are people who are under observation. And so that's a different condition than what you might say is. Well, nowadays, I guess it's really not different than what's ordinary, but you could say that organisms are not always under surveillance. And so their decisions aren't necessarily influenced by the fact that they know that they're being watched. But in the case so, of a- I agree with that. If you're, I mean, you could talk about it even just in the terms of quantum mechanics, when you're observing something, it changes the result. But do you, do you think that in this case, that what they've discovered is happening in the brain is going to be different in the experimental situation than, you know, just someone going about their day? Well, I can't that, say that in, I, mean, I, I can't say that I think it would be different, but I can say that we don't know because that's the problem with experimentation is that it is uh, necessarily an artificial uh, situation. Whenever you're kind of putting a box around something so as to be able to observe a given phenomena, and you're doing that just by defining whatever it is that you think you're looking at and what you think the moving parts are within it. So all of those things are abstractions. They're all, you know, you can make different decisions about how those things are formatted. I agree with you, but I guess I'm saying is like, what do you think is probably the case? Like, do you think it's an accurate representation, these experiments of what's happening in any other more natural moment? You don't know for sure, but what would you assume? I think that you, you can do the experiment within yourself and, and you will notice that the thoughts happen before you notice them. You know, there is definitely, I, I tend to think of consciousness as being a receiver, not a manufacturer ideas occur to us. Now, we may, may do certain operations that will stimulate the development of various concepts, but the actual concept itself 
quote unquote, occurs to you. It's a happening Mm -hmm. within your consciousness and you are subject to those happenings, not the um, author of them. So what, what you where's, offer, where's the, when you're, if, when you're asked to think of a city, any city that you have oh, yeah. that, that, that exists and to, and to name it, and there's a few that occur to you initially, right. like, are you saying that there was a pre-conscious situation where you took in consideration all possible cities and w- narrowed it down to a couple and then shot that into consciousness? Well, certainly it's not all possible because we're not aware of all the possibilities. No one, I I don't think there's probably a single human being on the face of the earth who would, who would have had the exposure to all the names of the various cities. Out of the sample of all cities that we have been exposed to. Right. Well, obviously you have then a, a kind of hierarchy that gets established because you may have been exposed to the name of some city once or twice, and there will be others that you've been exposed to hundreds, maybe thousands of times. So, yeah, Or have been to, or have some yeah. sort of affinity for. But are you saying that these things happen, these are sourced, this whole process of narrowing down is occurring in the fundamental entity, who you are, who the one who makes decisions, or is this process happening in, in the brain? Um, well, brain is really a good question. And I think that there are some problems (laughs) with the idea that these things are happening in the brain, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, research has shown that the things that can be, uh, isolated as happening within the brain are, are limited to somatic processes. So when it comes to abstract operations, such as higher math. There's no signal uh, detectable within the brain. So a lot of the the various functionalities that are happening within consciousness, they really don't have a way of isolating it within the brain. It's basically only the ones that have a somatic response where the body is involved. So the signal that, that will get sent to muscle, for example, in order to do a movement, something along those lines. So in the action, which is, I think, really fascinating and kind of central to the whole question here. That's what, that's what we have the ability to measure, but that might be just because those somatic you know, networks, the signal that's getting sent is a very powerful one and one that we can pick up with instruments and uh, you know, distinguish out from all the rest of the noise. But that doesn't mean that within the noise... Well, that's that's possible, but it may also be that the it may also be that the abstract facility is not occurring within the brain, that 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 the brain is a receiver of consciousness, that the consciousness is happening in a non-physical domain, and that the interface is essentially the brain with the body. So all phenomena uh, that requires some kind of biological action will then be detectable within the brain because the brain is just that interface between consciousness and physical reality. But the abstract uh, processes don't necessarily have a bodily function. There's no need for the body to get involved in them. And if the brain is simply a receiver of consciousness, then it would be happening in some other domain. And that 
you know, while I don't think there's any way to necessarily prove that, I think that is probably the most likely scenario from my understanding. So it sounds like you're saying the brain is a receiver mm. and it's receiving a signal from some other source and it, you know, will pass, it'll process to some degree and then send things to the body to do whatever it's interpreting it, the message it's been sent, it wants it to mm -hmm. do. Is that, is mm -hmm. that right? So what is the source of the signal that the brain is picking up? Well, I, you, you could say that the brain is picking up signal from its senses uh, uh, in the physical domain and that it is uh, receiving consciousness from the spiritual domain. And so okay. the spirit, spiritual domain is able to experience the phenomena that the senses send to it and then it can do a variety of things within that domain. You could say it's sort of like a platonic realm wherein various operations are occurring in a non-physical way and mm -hmm. then there's a feedback loop where the, the will can make a determination as to some type of action, whether that's a, a physical action or uh, utterance. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 all those things are fundamentally physical, physical expressions. So in, in the case of, I don't know the exact details of this, but there's apparently some guy who had children and he got some sort of brain tumor and he was acting... You know, he was basically being pedophilic, you know, and doing those types of things. And when they got rid of the brain tumor, that went away. And then when the brain tumor came back, that behavior came back. So are you, are you saying that in that case, the, the spiritual being was sending a signal and the brain was just, as a receiver, was no longer processing that signal in a correct way and was instead acting in a different way? Is that what you think you're in there? Well, actually, I'd say it's more likely that it would be on both ends of it. So the brain tumor, of course, is a physical mass, and it will impact mm -hmm. the sensing capability as well as potentially impact the response capability. So I'd say that you, what, what you're getting is a damaged instrument, an instrument that is not properly sending signals to the or potentially on both ends, not properly receive, receiving sense information, not properly transmitting it to the spiritual domain. And then on the other end, there may be some kind of similar um, distortion or uh, confusion of the responses. So then is the spiritual being of that man responsible for the molestation of his daughter? Boy, I mean, that's that's a moral question that's incredibly difficult to, you know, because on some level or another, we all have faulty apparatus. Mm -hmm. And so we are all, you know, it's like a, a, a level of degree. So to the extent that that behavior was occurring, then it couldn't be allowed to continue. So he's responsible in the sense that you got to stop this guy from doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Um now, 
when they did the operation and the tumor was removed and his behavior was restored to normal, that seems to me to uh, basically absolve him of the responsibility of himself in that prior state. But, you know, <laughs> life isn't fair. You know, it's, it's just... So, so the spiritual being, are you saying the spiritual being does have some responsibility as long as it is in that state? Of, of, you know, the, its body, which is picking it up as malfunctioning? Well, there's a huge question here as to what do we mean by the spiritual being? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not clear about that, and I don't know that it's possible to be clear about that. Like, for instance, is it the case that we each have an independent spiritual being? Uh, it seems on some level that that must be the case. Otherwise, we would be all experiencing each other's existence. So there's some degree of independence here. And so there's like a, it's basically, we have independent domains within within the spirit that we sort of operate within. But there seems to be a little bit of slop. You know, there seems to be some back and forth. And maybe ultimately, as is suggested in some of the, uh, ancient wisdom traditions, maybe ultimately we are all basically manifestations of the same soul, of God or of Brahma, Atman, however it is you want to con- conceive of that, that there is basically a universal experiencer of which we are all uh, drops of of mist on the ocean. So when the ocean is churning, like the ocean is one body of consciousness. And as it's churning, some of it gets thrown up into the air. And so it has this momentary position of being separate. You get these little drops that are p- kind of their own little thing for a moment before they go back into the uh, the universal body. So that's the kind of image that that I think of that, that seems mm-hmm. most satisfying, at least to me. But again, all of this is very speculative. It's, inc- I think, probably impossible to know with the kind of certainty that we aspire to in our scientific endeavors. The thing that's ironic about it is that so many of the things that we take for granted as being knowable within the physical domain, the more we really drill down on them, the less certain we become of them. You know, the whole quantum mechanics thing is one thing that jumps to mind. And it seems that that quite often a, a lot of the most elaborate mm-hmm. theories that we've constructed, although they may have some real predictive powers, increasingly we're starting to see that uh, maybe we got something wrong here. Mm-hmm. It's intre- Did you catch, uh, did you watch that last thing that I sent you, the, um, the Hoffman? Yes. Yeah, so he makes the point that that both causality and chance are fundamentally infinite regress and that and that there is a yeah. essential problem with the concept of causality and chance which are at the core of the materialist perspective mm-hmm. so modern science essentially relies upon the concept of causality and the concept of chance to explain everything from you know, the behavior of particles to the genetic, various genetic mutations and what have you, it's, it's absolutely essential to the pillars of science, these concepts, which 
can't really actually be defined or drilled down on. And there's actually kind of more evidence against causality and chance mm-hmm. than there is for it. So basically he's saying that it has that causality and chance have the same problem as free will and that we don't really, there's really no evidence that we can rely on when we drill down to any of them. So why do we choose, why do we choose free will out of the three? Well, I, I actually think that if we're going to be strict on our definition of free will, that we don't have the same problem because it, see what a lot of people do, including Sam Harris and, and I think, uh, Ken Wheeler also, uh, they fold the question of cognition. You know, do we have free will when it comes to the things we're thinking? You know, that's kind of where I think things get problematic. Obviously, we don't. You know, the things that we think occur to us, it happens to us. So I think that it's a mistake to include the cognitive realm in the question of free will. And if you don't do that, if you don't include that realm, then you don't have the infinite regress problem. Because all we're doing is talking about whether or not we have a choice at any given moment. So given the various things that are occurring to us, both externally, sensorily, and internally, cognitively, do we have a choice in whatever our action is? You know, and, and people who believe in the, in the selfish gene concept would say no, that basically we're just acting according to the uh, the biological determinism of the survival of the genes. But, you know, in some respects, the whole story of um, uh, George Price, who's uh, one of the main characters in the third section of All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, who developed the ideas, the mathematics that proved, quote unquote, the selfish gene theory, he essentially went out of his way to disprove the theory. Now, the question is whether or not he succeeded. And you could make a case on either side. But but I would say that it's pretty clear that there are instances where people have decided to act against the best interests of their genes. So clearly, George Price was one of those guys. You know, he, he gave away all of his possessions he, to strangers, to complete strangers who he had no genetic relationship with, and he ultimately ended up committing suicide. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's, that's about as definitive a proof that someone has uh, free will. Now, that's not to say well, that I it's... I think it disproves his idea of how... Of- everything being controlled by genes, but I, I don't think that, you know, channeling Sam Harris, I don't think it's not like we can't come up with a, or imagine a deterministic situation with the brain and the interaction with the genes and the environment where someone does exactly what he did. I don't feel like it disproves free will from the rational way of looking at it. Uh, oh, you mean it, you don't think it necessarily proves free will from the rational way of looking at it? Yes, right. That right. is what I mean. So um, I suppose that's true, but, you know, okay, so what would Sam Harris say is going on there, that it's just the... Uh, the well, He's having an emotional reaction. He doesn't like the perspective of everything being determined by the genes, which is, of course, true because really the environment has a larger effect on things than the genes do, which is just epigenetics, which is, you know, it's been around for a while, but it hasn't really permeated into people's 
defines yet. So, but taking that in consideration, that's not that doesn't exist necessarily outside of a deterministic situation. So he he doesn't like the idea for whatever reason, and so he goes about trying to prove that he does you know that it exists a different way, and he acts in that way. And and one of the ways he acts to disprove it is killing himself. It's that important to him. Well, what is substantially the difference? between using exactly what was just said there as an argument for free will. You know, because basically you're talking about his preferences. So you're saying, well, he had certain emotional responses and they created preferences mm -hmm. within him towards a certain type of behavior. So wh what's to mm -hmm. say that those preferences aren't essentially an expression of free will? <laughs> you know, it's like... Well, because I feel like there's no reason to assume free will yet. I mean, we can imagine a situation where it's working. But there's no reason to assume that it doesn't exist either. It's not an argument against it. I'm just saying that that's not really an argument against it because you can interpret the mechanism. But the difference is that I can imagine, I can imagine my, based on my understanding of how the brain works and how physics works and stuff like that, how that would come to be. But I can't imagine it's, it feels like it's impossible to imagine how free will works. And so it just feels like there's a default to, yeah, I don't, it doesn't answer the question either way, but I feel like I can imagine one way and I can't imagine the other. So I'm going to default to the one which I can, you know, think about. So what is it about, uh, the, what's the obstacle in being able to imagine this as a free will process? Because what well, it comes down to, what do we mean by the spiritual being? And, and then what, if that spiritual being has the ability to make the choice, what do we, what do we mean by that? Like, is there a process through which that spiritual being makes a choice? Um, or is it just, it just comes out of nothingness or it just doesn't, there's no, I don't feel like I have much framework to think about it. Well, it seems to me that the evidence is within the experiment that shows that the, cognition, the recognition of a decision or of a thought occurs after the thought has happened. <laughs> so there is proof to some extent that some kind of a phenomena is occurring before the brain recognizes it, before we're able before to measure it. Before the individual recognizes it in well, consciousness. In some respects, the, I mean, what we're doing is we're measuring a brain, Right. That, that's what they're doing. When they take the, they're taking the nervous system and they're measuring electromagnetic impulses. So, in essence, what they're looking at is signal within the nervous system apparatus. So they're either going to get a signal or not, right? So the, there's a signal that occurs within the apparatus before the owner of that apparatus is aware of it, Right? Mm-hmm. So doesn't that suggest that the etiology, that the source of that signal is exterior to the individual? I don't think so. I mean, the why brain, not? We're not aware. We're not aware of everything that's going on in our brain. Well, where's it coming from then? Well, I mean, there's a mystery there, we're right? Not aware of it, just because we're not aware of it doesn't mean that it's not occurring in the brain. Our brain is not aware of all aspects. There is a small aspect of our brain where things come into consciousness. But that's, right, that's that true. But okay, so consciousness, I guess, is a complicated word. It's similar to the whole thing of free mm -hmm. will. What are we folding into consciousness? Right. 
So if we're going to think yeah. of consciousness as the thing that, like typically in, in English we'll say, we are conscious of something, right? So if we're going to fold consciousness and say that it's only about what we're aware of, that's a completely different way of looking at consciousness than the way that consciousness is usually referred to just by itself. Like the conscious part of consciousness, right, is a responding, a, a, uh, a sensing and responding capability that we're aware of. And then consciousness in general is a sensing and responding capability that we may or may not be aware of, right? So there are autonomic uh, processes, right, that are, that are involved in the management of the body. Yes. Right? Now, as I understand it, most of those processes are detectable. We can see what part of the brain is involved in those, I believe the correct word, I used it before, I hope it's the correct word, is somatic. We can see the various processes happening autonomically within the brain that are related to bodily function. Yes, but those th because those are largely louder and more distinct signals from the rest of what's going on, which kind of blends into itself. So, I mean, I think you're probably right. We can sense more subtly in the brain what's going on in the brain beyond what's just somatic and what's going to turn into a muscular motion. But I think there still is a limit. We we there's still things going on in the brain which are so subtle or so drowned out by noise that. We, we don't currently have the ability to detect them. Well, that's possible, okay? So that's certainly one of the possibilities. So we may be taking... Well, I would say that's uh, I would say, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I've studied neuroscience, and I'm pretty familiar with the, the methodologies they use to study, to measure these things. And I would say it's a certainty that, that there is a level which we cannot dive into. We don't have that subtle of technology. Well, yeah, of course, but, but that doesn't mean that that's the domain within which other operations are occurring. It just doesn't necessarily assume, mean that. Well, why not? Why not? Why would we assume that it's coming from somewhere else once it reaches the point that we don't have the technology to measure? Well, why would we saying, assume well, that it's, it's coming from there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's the same problem, right? We, we don't know. So. Because it has so far, it has so far with what we've been able to measure, it seems to be accurate down to the point that we can't measure. So why would we assume that it's, it suddenly enters a different realm when we exit? I mean, we don't know either way. I, I agree that we don't know either way, but why would we say it's a 50-50 chance at that point? Well, I think it would be difficult to put numbers on it, but all it comes down to is the extent to which we're able to distinguish noise from signal. And we obviously have some pretty fine instrumentation nowadays, and I don't know the extent to which our, the, the furthest realms of our take, technical capabilities are being applied to neuro, neuroscience, but I would imagine that they are. So I would imagine that the finest possible levels of gradients are being uh, examined, and that's a pretty fine level of gradients. And if you consider what it is that you're experiencing so when you do a somatic activity versus an abstract activity, if you're involved in a serious set of abstract problems, it is a pretty intense uh, use of energy. So, you know, it seems to me that that's pretty decent evidence to consider the possibility 
that the abstract faculty is not happening within the brain. Although it does beg the question, where is the energy going? So, I mean, I, I, I ultimately, I think I, you and I are aligned on what we think in this perspective, but I'm going to be taking the devil's advocate here. So I just want to make sure people are clear on that. And Great. I think really the best way to drill down here is to go back to what we mean by the spirit and its interaction with the body. So we have the example of the guy who had cancer, and we're saying that the body was faulty, and so it wasn't acting according to what the spirit entity would have wanted it to do. And so I assume we would both say that the spirit entity is not responsible at that point. But we probably would both say that the spirit entity can be. Well, I'm not entirely sure that I would ascribe wanting to the spiritual domain. It's hard to say. You know, obviously, when we're dealing with efforts to understand, we're confronting the realm of the unknown at every turn. And so we have to be really clear about where the lines are and what actually is it within the unknown domain and what we can get some kind of uh, of knowledge from. So it seems to me that the seat of agency that has to do with wanting, that has to do with bias, I'm not sure if that's in the spiritual domain. It seems that many of the spiritual traditions suggest that it isn't. So for instance, within one of the main systems that I'm interested in, the Taoist conception of internal alchemy. The state of balance is one that neutralizes bias, that dissolves thought objects and returns to a state of complete receptivity as represented in the, like, the prenatal arrangement of the, of the trigrams of the Bagua, for example. So in that state, which is the path towards the spirit, one might say, what you're doing essentially is emptying yourself of all bias so as to experience the spiritual domain. So it's not entirely clear to me that, that we could say that. So if, but if, we're, if, we're saying, if we're saying that choice is made by the spiritual entity, which I think you said earlier, that would imply mm, desire. No. Or, I mean, just the term free will implies desire. Will means you want things to be a certain way. It means preference. Yeah, well, wait a second. I don't think that I was saying, and, and if I did say this, I, I don't think it's correct. I don't think I was saying that the uh, spiritual domain was the seat of the will, and I don't think I was saying that that's where the choices are made from. I think what I was saying is that the abstract cognitive processes that are not somatic are occurring within the spiritual domain, but that the bias of the individual self that's attached to the body, right, which is at the kind of interface between spirit and, and substance, between the, the matter and uh, So the material and the spiritual domains have this interface, and you could say that the brain is kind of that interface, the nervous system. So So it seems like you're saying that will or desire is sourced in the brain then, not necessarily in the spirit. Yes. Is that right? I think that... So would you say that the brain, the aspects which are coming up with the, the bias, the desire 
which are receiving the signal from this other spiritual being, which has cognitive processes occurring inside of it, that it is that the body is the only source of will. Like that is where will comes into things. Well, like I said, I think there's an interface between spirit and physical, and that is essentially the the individual mind. You could call maybe we could call that the soul. So you know, each of us has a a part of us that is bridging the divide between our spiritual impulse and our physical impulses. So being embodied creatures, we have many um, imperatives that we must abide by in order to maintain the body. And that's an extremely important aspect of our being. But at the same time, there are many of us who explore realms that are unrelated to that, 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 are abstract realms, in essence, and that uh, suggest that there is a mode of being that transcends the physical. So the, the discomfort that we have is in balancing these two things that are in many respects contradictory to each other. The material world is something... So you, said that, you said that both the material and the spiritual have impulses. Was that? Do you feel like that's accurate? That's a good question. I mean, it may be uh, it may be useful to think of it in those ways, but I don't know for certain whether there would be a. I think that there is an a spiritual impulse within the soul. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So there is an impulse within the soul to move towards the spirit, and there's an impulse within the soul to move towards the material, and we are kind of stuck in an uncomfortable divide between the two. Uh, whether or not there are impulses within the spirit, spiritual domain i don't know i can't say i have no idea clearly there are a variety of impulse you could say signals occurring within the physical um i think that the beauty of uh of hoffman's concept is his mapping of the distributed free will the interacting conscious agents which is actually something that i've uh i've i've written a couple of things about um I have a piece that's very similar to that kind of a structure, I think, uh, that, that talks about some of this stuff. I'll send it to you later, and I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's interested. So it seems to me that we're dealing with a set of oppositional relationships. That, that, that's kind of the basic matrix of all existence. And you could say that the most fundamental division is between so-called spirit and matter. You know, or as one of my teachers refers to it as understanding and substance, which is a very interesting way of putting it. Because if you take a look at those terms, understanding, substance, it's the same thing, right? One is a verb and the other is a noun. So substance is the material. We're dealing with so-called things and the objects. And so we're, uh, as things ourselves, we have a physical body, so we're trying to maintain our physical body, so we are concerned with objects, right? But understanding, for instance, uh, shows that, well, the distinction between objects is not all that clear. That's what Alan Watts talks about a lot in his talk, right? He's constantly going back to this idea that uh, the organism environment is an artificial distinction. And I think there are some real problems with his way of looking at things, but I, I do enjoy his perspective from time to time. And it would be really interesting to get into 
some of those problems. But so we see that in, that from an understanding point of view, many of the distinctions that we make um, kind of without thinking about them too much turn out to be maybe not true. And then we do have this understanding that, well, all of this is temporary. You know, life is uh, kind of a, a very brief little jaunt. It's like that little drop of water that separates from the ocean and it has its moment of like uh, flying free. But it's very temporary, particularly when you consider deep time. You know, even earth time is uh, makes an individual human life look like nothing. And then if you consider the time uh, scales of the cosmos, even less so, right? So this is understanding, right? And, and understanding is something that helps to relieve us from the pressures and anxieties of substance, right, of the physical. But it's a, an uncomfortable uh, dialectic. It, it, the two things are in opposite worlds, and yet you, I don't think you could have one without the other. I don't see how you could have substance without understanding or understanding without substance. They are married to each other. It is the relationship between Hashem and, and Shekinah. It's, it's God and the creation. So just to bring it back to the relationship between the spirit and the, the frequency, the radio basically, which is picking up the frequency, which would be the body or the material in this case. What, what is the source of what you would call free will like is that does that is that sourced in the spirit and the body picks it up is it sourced in the body and the spirit has some other relationship to it or, or something like that okay well i have to point out that the concept of source is uh, a causality way of looking at things and if we're going to look at causality it's an infinite regress and so there are fundamental issues when it comes to questions of causality but when I step out of the world of causality, I feel like I have no way of thinking about it. I, I don't know how to think about it. Maybe there's a whole other realm of understanding which exists where this can make sense. But from, from the perspective of rationality, which is the only tool I know how to use, causality is the one that works. Okay, well, let's, let's take a crack at it, see if, see if, I can, uh, if I can provide a fresh perspective. So the concept of causality is time dependent. You have to be able to take events and compare them with other events in order to string together a plausible chain of causal factors, right? So in essence, time is taken as being real in order to create a causal structure. I understand how causality can be shown to not be a working model. I totally agree with that, but I'm I'm just saying that I don't have any other tool to think about this with. Right, I'm getting to that. So you know, we're 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 talking about a variety of different abstract models on how things may exist, and one of the abstract models is the idea of causality, and it's built upon the concept of time. But if we examine time, we see that as far as existence goes, time does not exist in the same way that things actually exist, that the, the real world, right. in quotes, exists, because the past is not present. So there is no real tangible past 
happening in the same way that this experience that we're having right now and the objects around us and you cannot put your hand through that wall. I mean, if it's drywall, you can, but, you know, it's all, it all has a very real property to it that's undeniable, whereas past and future are fundamentally conceptions. These are uh, struct structured within cognitive realm. So time is fundamentally a construction of the mind. That doesn't say, that's not to say that change doesn't occur. It's just to say that the idea of a timeline is fundamentally a, uh, a cognitive construction. It's an artifact of the mind. So how might we uh, conceive of change occurring without using time? Well, we could say there are conscious agents. Conscious agents are sensing and responding. Right, and as as uh, as uh, Hoffman points out, that implies time already. Well, it doesn't necessarily involve time. There doesn't have to be a conception of time in order for a conscious agent to have a sensation, because the sensation always happens now. Right, but you, you said that there is the input, there's the input, and then the output, and that implies the the before and the after. That's only if you step back from it. But in terms of the actual mechanism of the conscious agent processing, there is no need to step back from it. Its operations don't require that it has uh, a sense of what it is that it's doing. It's not necessary for that. It can simply be a conscious agent acting on the capacity of sensing and responding. So from the subjective point of view, then I would agree, but it doesn't mean that we can't look at that from an objective point of view and say, well, not necessarily objective, but that, 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 you know, is happening because of the way that we understand neuroscience to be that they, they both can coexist. The person feeling like their decisions happening in the moment doesn't necessarily mean when we're looking at things from the time perspective that, it, that it's not, or that even that, that the cause and effect, the input and the output way of looking at it isn't valid just because the subjective feeling of it is that it's instantaneous. Well, I'm not saying that uh, this is necessarily an invalidation of the causation model. What I am saying is that this is a model that doesn't involve the chain of event causality that relies upon a conception of time. Because if you have conscience agents that are acting only in the present, and so they are sensing and responding only in the present, then you don't need to have any greater sense of causality than that. You don't have to have a, a chain of events. All you need, basically, is to say that this is an arrangement that responds as it does. In other words, it goes for the isness aspect rather than a, what's the right way, retrospective, right? So, we try to paint a picture that puts together a various set of uh, boxcars, links in the chain that will explain how it is that we got here. But what you could say is that mm -hmm. we have a, as uh, Hoffman puts it, distributed free will network, a network of conscious agents, and that these conscious agents are continually modifying each other in the present, and that it's the arrangement of these conscious agents, much in the same way that it's the arrangement of nodes within a network, that determines the properties of the overall network and the occurrences that happen therefrom. So you don't really need to have that. That, I think, is a much more useful and 
probably realistic model because, uh, you know, as it's been already acknowledged, uh, not only are causality and chance uh, problematic concepts, but the concept of time itself is a fundamentally problematic concept. And you don't need any of those things if you deal with a, a distributed network of conscious agents, if, if that's your model. So I would suggest that that would be the alternative to uh, trying to find a rational way of tracing the lineage of every occurrence. So in your model of thinking about it, is responsibility a coherent concept? Well, okay, let's define the term. What does it mean? <laughs> what does responsibility mean? Does it mean the ability to respond? Basically that you could have... That that you had basically a set of choices that you could have made and you chose to make one of them and what, and that you, the choice that you made says something about who you are as an individual and how other entities, other nodes in this network are going to react to you. So they're going to judge you not based just on how you're likely to behave in the future, whether you're dangerous or not to them, you know, kind of without a, a, mindset of needing retribution or anything like that, just avoidance of harm or, or response. I guess there's two ways of thinking about responsibility, like, or responsibility in that you're a shitty person. Like you are a shitty node in this network. You are fundamentally flawed and, you know, bordering you're on, you're closer to the evil side of the spectrum right. than the good. Well, uh, what I would say is that conscious networks come in aggregations, and the aggregations are like different functions within the overall network of conscious beings. And so each aggregation is essentially a bias. It has a particular point of view. And so any given agent making a decision is going to have a significance to the aggregations of the various collectives that are happening within the larger whole. So you could say that this, uh, this is the interaction of species within the biosphere, and it's the interaction of different groups within society. So are, are you saying that morality is merely a, just kind of the opinion of whatever tribe you're living in? Let that, let, let's say one node from outside of the tribe decided to destroy, just for no reason, to destroy another node. Like, is that is that bad because local nodes think that it's bad or is it bad objectively? Well, I think that, that it's been noted many times that one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. So uh, quite often... Well, so, but that doesn't... It still seems like there could be an objective right and wrong. I mean, yeah, people have ideas about what's good and bad and probably both of them are wrong and right on in, in certain ways, but there doesn't mean that there isn't an objective truth behind it. Well, it's difficult to say, I think. You know, uh, for instance, you could say murder is always wrong, and I think that that's, you know, there's a core of our uh, social contract that indicates that that's definitely the case. But let's say you murdered, uh, I mean, I guess the classic example would be Hitler, right? So someone who's doing fucking terrible shit Right, so right, but that's so that's a different that's a different circumstance. So let's but that's the whole point specific, is that all of this is dependent upon different circumstances. You know, the, the, well, 
but I'm not talking about their different circumstances. How do we how do we refer to this in absolute terms? How do we come up with some kind of absolute morality? Well, I think unfortunately it's contextual, and that context has to do with the arrangement of the nodes, and there are going to be different perspectives about it. And obviously that's exactly how it is, because people have different perspectives about so as far as some people are concerned. Committing mass war, you know, mass genocide is perfectly justifiable in wartime conditions. People make that argument. Yeah, but that's so, th so that's an uh, that's an opinion. And right. I'm saying, okay, if we narrow it down to a, a specific situation where there is a person who has not caused anyone harm, has not indicated that they intend to cause anyone harm, and it has no evidence that they're going to cause anyone harm, and someone's stepping in and saying, "I'm going to kill them." Right. Now, is that objectively wrong, or is that just the opinion of people in that local area of the node network? Well, you could say that uh, there are periods in time where the continuation of physical existence requires that one do harm to other beings. Right. So I might go and I might go and fish because uh, the supermarkets are down and I have no way of getting food. And so I'm going to willingly do something which I would call wrong because I want to survive. Right. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't wrong. Well, but that's your, your personal determination because for some people, survival is the whole story. As a matter of fact, that was something that, that seemed to be, now who was it who made that really part of their whole structure? Oh, I remember Mark Passio. So in his worldview, you have this the sort of scientism, um, uh, materialism, it's, uh, but randomness, that, that, that things are kind of based on this randomness and that survival is the primary uh, issue, that, that that's fundamental to what it is that we're, yep. right? That's the greatest good, yeah, but, from that perspective. You know, is that... Is that actually true? But uh, from some people's point of view, it is. And so it's like the Donner Party, right? Well, I think he's saying so, it's not true. <laughs> you know, you had a situation where uh, none of them would have survived if some of them didn't eat the others. So some of them did eat the others. Now, I imagine that would be just about one of the worst kinds of situations that one could be in. But obviously someone there justified that to themselves. And when you take a look at it objectively, like, well, I guess if you really believe that survival is the most important thing, well, there you go. It's like, what's the difference between that and deciding, well, it's really wrong to, to eat fish, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to survive, you know? So it's just a much more extreme version of that. It's a, well, yeah, I, yeah. There's, there's how we interpret it. Like I can recognize that it's I can believe that it's objectively wrong to take the life of something else when it is not threatening me. But in certain circumstances, my the biological imperative is going to trump that and I'm gonna go fish that thing out of the river and hit it over the head. But that doesn't mean that there isn't the objective right and wrong. Whether no matter there's a wide view of perspectives about about how to behave, but it doesn't mean that there's not objective truth about it. Well, so here we go with free, free will again, because obviously we have a choice when it comes to right and wrong. So we can believe that something is wrong and do it anyway. So what does it mean to believe that something's wrong if we do it anyway?
So do you think something's only something's only wrong if you believe it's wrong and then do it? That's a good question. I, uh, you know, if if we actually abided by our principles and never did what we thought was wrong, would it really be wrong? That's a great question. I I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So without without kind of like expanding into the ideas around it, do you believe personally? I'm just talking about you that there is an objective right and wrong, that killing the innocent person who had, there's no evidence that there are any threat to you just because you would enjoy it, that that is objectively wrong and not your opinion. I don't think there's an objective position. I do think that we are each burdened with the responsibility of coming to a determination as to what, as to what is right and wrong. And then we are burdened with having to make decisions based upon that. Okay, but we're not... We're not making a decision based on what we, we're not trying to come up with an idea of what is right and wrong because we just want to create our own idea. We're we're trying to figure out what is actually true. Well, yeah, but that's what that's our that's what we have to do. It's our each of our individual task to figure that out. We can't really say with any certainty that there is a collective or objective truth to that because. There are so many different versions but of what people have come to believe. In the act of trying to determine what is the right or a wrong way to act in the world, there is just implied, it's an assumption just implied in the very act of doing that, that there is a truth about it. Yes, but it's not necessarily a universal truth. It's a personal truth. How, how can we... I, I don't think so. I think that when at least when I'm trying to make that determination. I'm not saying, well, I'm just going to come up with something and I don't think it has any relation to what's true. I'm, I'm trying to find out what's true. And I think that's true for everyone, I would assume, but I guess I don't know that for sure. Yeah, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it seems to me that um, some people will accept what others have decided uh, without questioning it. That it just seems... Because they believe it's true, though. Yeah. I, th I think that is right about what's true. Well, you defer to authority is, is basically what that is. It's like you're you're assuming that other people have figured this out better than you can. And so you're just going to go with their, you know, for whatever reason, you're convinced that they're correct. And I think that a lot of people have found themselves in that situation. And that's perfectly fine. The problem arises when you're not convinced by the rules that have been uh, established that you, or when you, when you start to see, you peer through and you see through the curtain and you realize, you know, they're not really, they don't really believe what they're saying. And there's, a, there's a wide range of different ways that one can come to having to sort it out themselves. But I think that certainly, um, the world as we experience it today, particularly in the West, a lot of people have, have come to this point where they're feeling like they've had to sort it out for themselves for better or worse. Now, at some point or another, someone sorted it out and in such a way that it convinced a bunch of other people, and that's how you got those traditions of authority and what have you, and, and there were some very good reasons for a lot of those traditions. Tradition is considered to be one of the, the pillars of right understanding in uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So I think that it's we reject tradition at our at our great peril, and that's one of the things I think Jordan Peterson focuses on a lot. But um, 
But nevertheless, it's ultimately our determination what it is that we're going to abide by. You know, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people get plunged into a kind of nihilism and they decide not to believe in anything once the the veil is pierced and they, they kind of wander off into uh, moral relativism and that's a disaster, you know? So so to, to, just to take it back to the... Take, to take it back kind of the original question where we're at, like is responsibility a co- coherent idea in like the model that you're thinking about free will? Now let's pick the, just the idea of responsibility in that kind of like a from God's perspective – you chose to do this and therefore, and it was bad and therefore there will be bad consequences for you. Do you feel like that? Is well, true? I, I would, I would place it in the context of where I was just going. I would say that there is a responsibility on the part of all conscious agents to understand what they themselves consider to be moral and not moral. It's the responsibility of each of us to, uh, to, grapple with these issues and to, to abide as much as we possibly can by what it is that we determine. And we have to be completely honest about it. We can't fool ourselves, which is a tall order because it's very difficult to be completely honest about these things. And it's even more difficult to completely abide by them, right? Implied in what you're saying is this, this importance of really being very serious about it and taking very seriously implies that it's not just something you can just create and then create for yourself out of nothing and then follow. It's implied the belief that there is a truth about it, and it may be hard to narrow down and pinpoint, but that that is the goal, is to narrow down on what is the truth of the matter. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not defending moral relativism here. What I am saying, though, is that there's a wide range of moral systems and that uh, you know there may be some agreement within many of them, like think about, for example, how many moral traditions say don't murder, (laughs) but then think about how much murder there has been even since the establishment of these moral traditions. So there's a problem here and it goes a lot deeper than uh, simply establishing some kind of set of principles and trying to abide by them. There is a fundamental uh, contradiction in the relationship between our understanding and the the uh, the demands of the substance, the material and the spiritual are at odds with each other. We can understand what would be the best behavior. We can understand a moral universe, but the behavior of our species indicates that we are very selective when, as to when we apply. Our moral precepts. So I feel like I agree with you that there's a, there's an there's a general consistency. There's commonalities about what people decide is the truth about morality, and there's lots of deviations. And some of these deviations are probably very far away from the mark. Even the ones that are probably closer still have situations in history where it looks like they they used that thinking to justify doing horrible things. I mean, I agree with all of that, but I'm still saying it. It's all still based on the, the fundamental belief that there is an objective truth about it. Well, I, I don't know that... The, okay, I guess, you know, objective is a problematic term. So I would say that... Let that, me Wait, let me just define what I mean by objective. So in this case, I'm saying objective is if you do something which is wrong 
and just to give an example, the the case where you're killing someone for no reason because you enjoy it, that that will have you will whatever the deciding the thing the source of the choice will suffer consequences for having made that poor choice. So you're talking about a kind of divine justice. Yes. I like to believe that that's at play. <laughs> God willing, I hope it is. <laughs> but what about the case of the guy with the brain tumor who molested his daughter? When we're talking about some sort of absolute truth, the question is, within what domain? From my, It seems to me that the absolute truth of the substance is in contradiction to the absolute truth of the, of the spirit, of the understanding. The absolute truth of the understanding is that substance comes and goes, bodies come and go, it doesn't really matter. Meditate and neutralize and all this will pass. The understanding of the substance is you only get one life as far as we can tell. Yeah, they say we live forever, but as far as I can tell, I'm just here now. I better get what I can while I'm here. Those two things are, I mean, that's like the survival mode that, um, that, uh, Passio. Yeah. Mark Passio. Yeah. Um, that's the dilemma that we're faced with, there's a certain absolutism to both of those things. And the extent to which you inhabit one domain or the other is going to determine the degree to which that's the prevailing truth. Do you, would you say the spiritual truth is more true than the material truth? Well, you know, it's easy to say that. And I would, I tend towards that domain, but I'm also somewhat aware of the kind of pain that you suffer when you deny the material reality. <laughs> you know, it's like easier said than done, mm -hmm. I think. So you have to have a lot of respect for uh, the power of nature. The gunas are not a joke, right? The material mode of nature is extremely powerful. Would you say that the goal, maybe the goal of the entire material world is to overcome those pressures, you know, to with, to withstand torture for prolonged periods of time and still do what would be the correct thing to do from the spiritual perspective? I, I think that's a, an excellent model for what we're dealing with. Yeah. But I think that we, we deny the, the substance, the material world at our peril we have to integrate somehow or another, and that it's a, it's a difficult, uncomfortable integration. But that's what we're really being challenged to do. That's, I think, in many respects, the fundamental message of Passio's breakdown, which is a lot like the Rosicrucian concept of um, you have people who just think that the material is real and they're like the, the Satanists, and people who just <laughs> think that the spirit is real, and that's like the Luciferian, the light. Yeah. And they're both extremely dangerous and destructive. What you need yeah, is the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, which he defines as natural law. I think it's actually a pretty good. 
I think in many respects his picture is the one that most comports with mine, although I also do think there's a lot in what um, I don't think it. I don't think. I don't think that's actually true. That he calls it natural law. The the middle section, the thing that's in between the two, is that both are true, and the tr- deterministic aspect is natural law, and then the random aspect is the free will. Really? Okay, I'll have to look at that because that's yeah. not what I wrote down in my notes. But maybe I got it wrong. But it did strike me as being uh, one of the notes that I made here. I thought was interesting is that you can look at his. Uh, truth as being akin to Jordan Peterson's kind of uh, field of game rules of the game. So mm-hmm. uh, on a certain level, we're dealing with things which we cannot change, you know, so it's the old, you know, the wisdom to know the difference between the things that we can change and the things we cannot change. And the free will can be exercised within the domain of the things that we can change. And yet we are operating within a field that's based on rules of the game that we cannot change. To some extent, mm-hmm. those are our decisions, right? Um, so in social structures, we decide whether we're going to abide by the, the given rules. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. When it comes to things like the behavior of the physical world, as physics is attempting to understand, well, we don't appear to have much of a choice when it, <laughs> when it comes to those rules. And they are very much the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. We are definitely... Uh, so there's a variety of different levels in which we're dealing with different rules of the game. But those are the limits. Those are the limits on our ability to exercise uh, free choice. And I would say that there are some rules of the game that are within the spiritual domain and some within the material domain. And they come into conflict with each other. So I feel like at this point, it's basically coming down to a problem of not me, not fully understanding what you mean by the spirit. Um, And I feel like that's a good conversation to have but I don't know if we have the time to do that right now. So I'm wondering if you'd be interested in having another episode after this one. Sure. Not necessarily right now, but where we kind of go into that kind of, but within the context of still trying to define this free will situation. Well, there's an interesting uh, statement that's made within Taoism that I think of as being maybe not an explanation of the spirit, but it kind of gives you a sense of the overall arrangement of things. And they say that the mind is the ruler of the body. And so that's suggesting that uh, this experiencing mind, the, the, the whole, the, the, the individual consciousness is in some way or another, you know, ruler is maybe not the right word, but it's having a direct influence over the physical. And mm-hmm. it goes, the mind is the ruler body and the spirit is the treasure of the mind which is a fascinating way of thinking of it. Now, you could say that a mind is illumined by the spirit and that absent the spirit, the mind dwells in darkness. And that the spirit is accessed by eliminating one's thought habits by canceling 
thought fluctuations within the mind. Now, what is the spirit? Well, I mean, it's the treasure of the mind (laughs) because it illuminates things. (laughs) But can we say anything beyond that? I feel like I feel I feel compelled. So you think that we can't say anything beyond that? I think we can say a shitload beyond that, but can we back it up? I don't think so. You know, I I like to think that the spirit is, you know, the model within the Judeo-Christian is is perhaps something along the lines of the the spirit speaks to us from God. It's the message from, from the divine realm. And that, uh, so we have the capacity to get a little, just a little taste of, of something beyond our own meager and often miserable existences Mm -hmm. (laughs) through, through this capacity, through the spiritual door. So I feel like as you're saying all these things, I have many, many questions that that I can ask you, but I feel like it's going to lead into a multi-hour conversation again. And it is a conversation that I... (laughs) would like to expand on, but I guess like I can only engage in a conversation at this level for a limited period of time. And I feel like I have reached that limit. Okay. uh, Hey, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for bringing this up with me. And uh, I think it's going to make a really interesting episode and and I'm looking forward to whatever it is that you uh, distill from it all in in your video response to your questioner. Me too. I look forward to uh, next time. See you then. Okay, great. Adios. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember... Turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.